Welcome to the 37th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and I'm with my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello, everyone, and welcome, Louie. Today, it's our pleasure to talk with Louis Soyes, born far from the ocean in Iowa. Louis has been an award-winning photographer for National Geographic. He's the founder of the Ocean Preservation Society, an Academy Award-winning director of The Cove and director of other outstanding films, including Racing Extinction, The Game Changers, and Mission Joy. So let's start with the obvious, Louis. How'd you get from Iowa to the ocean? Jacques Cousteau, you know, watching Jacques Cousteau specials when I was a kid. I mean, I always wanted to be an oceanographer and um, really, uh, you know, when I started working at National Geographic, I was the first guy they hired in about 11 years. But um, one of the first things I did was, you know, they would assign photographers to, uh, to look through other photographers' work to see if there's, you know, the back then you'd, you know, if the film was getting scratched or if things were getting exposed properly. And the first photographers whose work I looked through was David Dubelay, who is one of the, you know, the best photographers in the world. And it was just, it put me in my place really quickly because I realized that I would never be as good as he would be. And it was, um, you know, it took me about 20 years, I think, before I had the, the courage to, to, you know, shoot underwater and, you know, with the, with the idea of trying to, I don't listen, you're not, I'm never trying to like beat somebody, you know, like there's, there's just no way you can touch other people's work, but it, it gave me the confidence, I think, to, um, to do my own work, you know, once I got into a certain level, but it was a, it was a, you know, uh, it was a journey to get from being a still photographer to a filmmaker. Right. Well, before we get there, you say, I started working at National Geographic. That's a line that a lot of people would probably like to be able to use. How'd you end up looking at David Dubelay's underwater classic photography and being inspired and being in a position? Um, well, I wanted to work with, uh, for National Geographic since I was a kid, you know, since I was about six years old and watching, uh, you know, my mother getting her hair done, I'd be you know, look at the geographics was, you know, mesmerizing, you know, that's true. And every photographer of a, every kid of a certain age wanted to work for either work for National Geographic or be an astronaut. And you actually had better odds of becoming a, an astronaut than a National Geographic photographer, because like they hadn't hired one, like I said, for 11 years, the point that I started, I got an internship, but the, every year, Back then, they took three internships, two by portfolio, where you submit your work, and one by winning a, a contest called College Photographer of the Year. When I was a junior, I applied by portfolio, and I got a really nice handwritten letter back from the director of photography, Bob Gilka, who said, you know, basically, kid, you, you know, internships are, are for people whose work isn't good enough to, uh, to be in, in publication yet. Yours is good enough. Good luck. And I was like, oh, I was so crestfallen. You're overqualified. <laughs> yeah, I was overqualified for a kid. And um, so I realized if I was going to have a chance of working there, I'd have to win this contest. And um, the next year, I'm in the process of moving right now. And I just uh, saw some some evidence of, you know, I, I won the contest, but I also won first first place in six of the categories. <laughs> so it's like it's, it's a worldwide contest. Um and I had the, you know, I had the chops back then. I loved, I loved taking pictures. I still do. What were your winning images of? Oh boy. <laughs> um, I remember there was one called, uh, I called it heated pool. 
and it's a, a little bit, it's kind of relevant now. There was a, I was working down at the uh, Los Angeles, San Diego diver- division of the LA Times. And it was a, a family uh, sitting by a pool, watching a fire come towards them with, you know, big towering flames. So I, I called it heated pool. Uh, another one was of um, migrant workers getting arrested, like, you know, just a rows and rows of them in a flatbed truck that were trying to sneak over the migrant workers trying to sneak over from Mexico to America. Um, there was, um, you know, so, some portrait personality, there's several categories, but I won quite a few of them, but you know, that only got me a summer job. And then one of the, uh, the people that were working at geographic, it was a layout editor that was about my age, a couple years older. He said, well, listen, you know, there's 30,000 working photographers in New York. Any one of them are good enough to, you know, shoot for the magazine. What you need to do to separate yourself is think like a writer. You like this, David. And, uh, you know, I, I came from a photojournalism background, so I was writing in photography. He said, well, you have to come up, think like a writer, come up with your own ideas. And I remember we were at the top floor of National Geographic having lunch. And there was somebody, uh, a cleaning woman, you know, hauling the trash across the floor. And, you know, I said, you know, how about a story on garbage? You know, there's this guy, Fred Ward, that was always doing these, you know, stories on like gold, silver, platinum. You know, he's a gemologist, rubies. And we thought, let's do a story on garbage. And, you know, we, um, he said, well, we could do a, uh, like an archaeologist going through, you know, the, the garbage like he would, like, a, you know, like it was a, a, an ancient site. And I said, well, I just read this article about this guy, Bill Rathjay, who was, who was a garbologist. And he studied Mayan uh, archaeology and he uses the same techniques. And he'd say, well, let's, uh, we could do, uh, you know, the garbage art, you know, art, art from garbage. You know, Fred always does art, art from these objects. And I was like, um, wow, I just read about this guy up in Mendocino who does, you know, garbage from art. In fact, anyway, that became the cover of National Geographic. But it, anyway, I, I proposed the story for National Geographic. They liked it. And then so they hired me. You know, I took Bill's idea uh, and my own sort of idea of how do you reframe a dark subject. Remember, <clears throat> back then, in America, there was only one mandatory, this is the keyword, mandatory recycling um, program in all of America. There was a recycling program, but there was only one that said you had to recycle everything. So the story I proposed was called Urban Ore. You know, the idea that it's, you know, ore being that it's valuable and we're throwing it away. And, you know, back then, National Geographic, I think it was that near the peak of their subscriptions. It was, the, I think, the second largest subscription magazine in the world and about 11 million people bought it four people saw each magazine so about 15 percent of america saw that story and it started you know there was a lot going on at that that you know during that time frame but it really started a, a water cooler conversation in america about recycling what you know because this is a a lot of people saw it. A lot of the movers and shakers saw it. There was a very high demographic of, of people that were political. You know, every co- copy of the magazine went to everybody in Congress. And uh, it started a conversation. And I could see that, you know, that, that was exciting to me because I come from this group of photographers. That it was called the concerned photographer. So, like I said, I wasn't interested in, like, just shooting pretty pictures. I was interested in how do you change a person's mind with photography? That was always my mindset. So I remember the garbage issue of National Geographic, but never associated it with you. So that's funny. How, how did you evolve from landfills to uh, dolphin slaughter? 
yeah, you'll never be able to look at the trash again without thinking of me. Um, <laughs> um, well, actually, I was doing another story for Geographic on the information revolution. This was back about 1993. This is the, the internet was just starting. And uh, for those people that don't remember that uh, the internet really got started in America with uh, Mark Andreessen and Jim Clark. Uh, they had uh, invented a, a, the first the first way that you could get on the internet in America was by, by something called uh, Netscape. And you know that <laughs> this went through the roof. So Geographic hired me to do a, uh, a story on the information revolution and Jim Clark was at the center of it. You know, he was like the Steve Jobs of our generation. And I tried to get a hold of him and he, you know, he was too busy. He was busy, you know, trying to make a, a business that would change the world. And then later on, I worked for Geographic for about 20 years and about um, the next work I had after that was shooting a lot of covers for Fortune magazine. And one of the assignments was to photograph Jim Clark. He had just built the world's largest, uh, or a boat with the world's tallest mast called Hyperion. And it was completely controlled by computers. Um, Michael Lewis did a book on it called The New New Thing. And um, they said, well, go, go over to Amsterdam and photograph Jim with, the, with his boat. He's there to be putting the mast in. And I'm scared of heights. I'm definitely, my dad died from a fall when I was eight years old, but um, I've, I was there the day they put the stick in the mast in this, and it was you know, 200 feet tall, just about. And I went up to the top of the mast and slid down and I photographed Jim standing on the top spreader. It was raining. So it had a yellow slick around. He's smoking a Cohiba and, you know, you could see the boat down below him. It was a, it was a beautiful shot. It was made the cover and we started talking. Uh, we went out to dinner that night and he says, um, basically, you know, I'd love to do a book on my boat. And I said, well, that's crazy. That's super expensive. And it'd be, it's, it wouldn't make any sense because it's mostly done already. And we, we found out that he, we both love to dive. And, uh, I don't know, about two or three months later, he gave me a call and he said, oh, I really want to do a book on my boat. You know? And I said, well, I told you it was stupid expensive. And he said, well, I said, what's changed? And he said, well, I just became a billionaire. You know, this Netscape stock went through the roof. And uh, he said, Louis, would you teach me how to be a good photographer? And so I said, Jim, I'll teach you how to be a great one if you teach me how to be a billionaire. And so he would, you know, literally pick me up on his golf stream, you know, over at Jeffco Airport, just, uh, you know, south of, of, of Boulder. And we go around the world and we take pictures, mostly underwater. And he, uh, he was really dismayed with the, the quality of the of the cameras that were underwater back then, they were all 35 millimeter and they're, the, the, you know, the digital ones were horrible. And even the ones that were filmed had color aberrations, all sorts of problems with them. And he said, why doesn't somebody build a really great underwater camera? You know, cause we're, he said, he, he could see it then. He saw we're losing the coral reefs. You know, this is over 20 years ago. He said, we're losing the coral reefs. We should document them before they disappear because the next generation, they're not going to have any idea of the ecosystem that we lost. And uh, I said, well, Jim, they're just too expensive. There's, you know, to get a, a medium format camera and put it into housing and design all the housing for it, it's just, just too crazy expensive. He built one. He built two of the best underwater cameras ever made by an order of magnitude. And that's what we used. We'd go around the world photographing um, coral reefs, basically dive with you know, a dozen lights, multiple divers. We'd put light stands underwater, tripods, and we'd light these um, these coral reefs, the best preserved coral reefs, like a jewel box. You know, like you would, 
you know, if you were in a studio, we dive with the rebreathers so we could be down two and a half hours or three hours without any kind of decompression obligations or very little. And we made these gorgeous por portraits of reefs. But every time we would go back to a, a reef or the ocean, we could see this degradation go on. And I think it was like the third time we were in the Galapagos, we came up and there was fishermen illegally fishing in a marine sanctuary. And he said, somebody should do something about this. I said, Jim, uh, how about you and I? Let's, let's do something about it. He said, what do you mean? I said, we'll use your money in my eye and we'll make films. So is that how the cove came about? Yeah, we actually started Racing Extinction, the second film. Before That, that was our first thing. I'll, I'll do a film, you know, about the degradation of the oceans and, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll do one on the extinction of the oceans. But then I was going to marine mammal conferences. And then at one of the conferences, I... I heard about Rick O'Berry and Rick O'Berry was the guy that captured and trained the, the five female dolphins that collectively played the part of flipper for the popular, you know, television series back in the 1960s. And, um, at the last minute, they wouldn't let him talk because he was And I found out why he was going to talk about the dolphin slaughter in Taiji. And I just, I just couldn't imagine that in this day and age, people were killing dolphins for, for human consumption. And, um, you know, Rick, you know, when I talked to Rick, he said, well, I'm actually going next week. Would you like to come? And I said, sure. Well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll catch up with you, though. And what they didn't tell him is I took a three-day crash course on how to make a film. <laughs> and then we, we went there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a little bit longer drawn-out process than that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have any business. I mean, I, I had the, the desire to become a filmmaker, but I just didn't have the chops. And I, I remember I was on uh, Jim's boat. He had built a new boat you know, world's largest private sailboat. And I'm down in the Caribbean and with our families on this boat. And my son starts playing on the beach with another kid and it happens to be Steven Spielberg's kid. Now, Steven Spielberg had done Jurassic Park on Jim's computer. Remember, that was the first really uh, film that had significant, significant CG and, you know, computer graphics that were completely invented, you know, dinosaurs that looked real. And, um, so Jim comes, uh, Jim invites Steven Spielberg onto the boat. And I, you know, I get Spielberg alone for a minute. I said, Mr. Spielberg, do you have any advice for a first time filmmaker? And he goes, yeah, never make a movie involving boats or animals. And that's because of, because of his uh, experience of doing Jaws. But, uh, you know, but the, the Cove became, you know, the most winning documentary in history by the amount of awards it won. But that was never the, the, the goal of it, wasn't to, to win awards. The, the, the goal was to, to stop what's going on, sort of in the vein of the concern photography that I was, you know, that I wanted to do. And, you know, the, the, at the time we did the Cove, they were killing about 23,000 dolphins and porpoises every year for human consumption in Japan. That was a quota. It was more about 19 or 20,000. And uh, I think the last time I, I can remember they had statistics for it, I think they killed 1,610. So it's down like over 90% since the film came out. And that's a lot because of the activism, not just of our group, but, but other groups that are working on it. Now there's Japanese people um, working on trying to um, you know, stop what's going on there. So dolphin deaths are down considerably because of that film and the activism around it. And well, and it, it was very nicely done because it could have been a PETA movie. It could have been, look at all the slaughter of the dolphins. And instead it was very much an action movie about how you documented the slaughter. You had some, you know, a, a beautiful couple of free divers who were planting bugs and 
and it kind of inspired people towards eco-activism. Um, I don't know if that was the intent, but that certainly was the effect. Well, the intent was to try to make a, you know, the first rule of filmmaking is don't be boring. And I, re I remember specifically the time I thought, well, God, if we can make a film, like I realized that they were going to, the Cove is a very protected place. It was protected by police dogs, um, electronic sensors, guards, you know, and we invented all these ways to break through the Cove. And I remember having this epiphany when I was standing in the park called Tsunami Park above the Cove. I thought, this is going to be exciting. You know, they wouldn't let us in to do it legally. So we'd have to break the law. And I thought, this could be fun, you know, uh, in, a, in a dangerous kind of way. You know what I mean? It, it, it in my mind, it took us from like, you know, like a, a, like a Nova documentary to something else. And I think, you know, Rolling Stone gave us one of the best compliments. They said, uh, you know, the, the Cove is like a cross between born identity and flipper. Game changers. I love that film. We saw that in Texas. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. But I remember laughing. And when I tell people about that movie, I say, you've got to watch it because it is funny, enjoyable, but it also really has a clear message. So, you know, our, our mission changed a little bit. You know, we used to say that we're not trying to save at, at OPS. So OPS is the Ocean Protection Society. Oceanic Preservation Society. We and when was that established? Uh, 2006, October. And we said, you know, we're not trying to save the whole world to 70% of it because, you know, 70% of the planet is the oceans. It was kind of a, you know, funny way of, well, anyway. <laughs> it's a, and then... Um, but you realize that if you're going to save the oceans, you have to change what's happening on land because awareness isn't enough. It's, it's not about like, you know, give the people the information and they'll do the right thing. I think people need to be, their, their hand needs to be held a little bit more. And, and certainly with the respect to, to if, if you want to change the world, we have to change what's on our plate because what we're doing what's put, being put on our plate right now is of directly affecting the oceans. It's affecting dead zones. It's attacked, uh, affecting the Great Barrier Reef from pesticides and fertilizers. Um, about 14.5% of our, our greenhouse gases comes from the raising of food for animals that we're in turn going to eat. And it's a very an inequitable relationship. Uh, I think it's something like, I want to say 86% of the land that we use is to raise food for animals that we're going to eat. And it only provides about 16% of the calories, more or less. So like this, in, you know, the eating of animals is the biggest cause of um, habitat destruction for endangered species. Uh, the biggest cause of freshwater pollution, one of the biggest causes of uh, greenhouse gases, responsible for about 85% of the, the chronic diseases we have. I mean, you can reverse, depending on the stage of, of disease that you have with uh, prostate, diabetes, or heart disease, the biggest killer of us all, you can reverse heart disease with a, with a whole foods, plant-based diet. The body just wants to have the right fuel. It just wants to heal. What's good for you is good for the planet. You know, because, you, you know, the average person in America eats about 10,000 animals in their lifetime. You know, you can't just think about the animal. Think about all the infrastructure it takes, the fresh water, the, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's thousands of, of gallons for like a pound of beef, you know, it's uh, that, that, you know, fresh water that you have to, to you know, that's all the crops that go into feeding that animal. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's three to four tons more of carbon dioxide per year, 9,000 square feet of area. 
about 401,000 gallons of, of water extra. I mean, the, the, the downstream effects of a, of, a, of a meat eater is bad for the environment. And think of all the pesticides that you have to put on that that gets washed down to the rivers and dissolves the reefs. It's, just, it's, a, it's a cascade of problems that can be alleviated for yourself and the planet and, and certainly the animals. So there's a wonderful line from in our film from Patrick Baboumian, who's one of the world's strongest guys. He's carried more weight for than anybody in human history. And somebody asked him, he said, you know, how can you get as you know, big as an ox, you know, just, just eating, eating plants? He says, have you ever seen an ox eating meat? <laughs> so when you produced the cove, you were already working on racing extinction. It's, it's a little bit, it's like the cove on steroids. You know, we, we built this. Uh, we built, we took a Tesla and put it, made it into a bond car for the environment. It's the first car in the world to have an electroluminescent paint job out of the front, the front of the, you know, the car where you normally have the engine. We had a forward looking in for a camera, a FLIR camera that came out of the, the front with a, uh, so we could see greenhouse gases. And then we could project those images out of, from a, like an IMAX projector that came out of the hatch. And we could project it on mountains and skyscrapers and uh, had, you know, disappearing license plate. You know, it was a, you know, an incredible car. It was a remarkable car, remarkable movie, and certainly, I think, really impactful. You know, when you look at the science of social change, the magic number is 10%. You need 10% of the population to be 100% activated, to believe in the truth. For that, that's the recipe for cultural, for, for social change. And so we, we knew we couldn't get to that number with a documentary, even a great one, but we could with, with projection events. So what we did is we projected endangered species onto the, um, the United Nations, onto the, the front of the General Assembly building. This is with their permission, by the way. And then on the North Tower, they have this wonderful Vermont uh, marble on the North side. We did that and we wanted to project endangered, I wanted to project endangered species onto the Empire State Building. That to me was like, you know, what I wanted to do the whole time. So we we uh, we projected um, endangered species on the Empire State Building, and we had 939 million media views by Thursday. We did this on a Saturday night. It's the top trending story on Facebook and Twitter for four days worldwide. And um, we thought we couldn't get any more. You know, that's you know, that's over 10% of the pop. Well, those are media impressions. So you could, you know, one person could see it a dozen times through different, you know, it was in the cover of the New York Times. Uh, you know, a lot of media picked up and showed it. But we thought we couldn't get any more impactful than that. And then the Pope called. The Pope wanted us to project on the Vatican for uh, right during COP21. Now, remember, Pope Francis is named after St. Francis of Assisi, the patron saint of animals. And so he wanted to remind world leaders while they were at COP that there's more at stake than just- So human. at the big co climate conference. Right, right. There's a new one coming up. So um, we, we did that for the Pope uh, during uh, Paris's you know, COP21. And we, it was incredible. I think there's 225,000 people watching that event live. We had 600 media there, 4.4 billion media impressions just in the English language. I mean, it just went through the roof and that those projections led to laws uh, that protect some of the most endangered species in the world, you know, because of because of the activism around it. It was really quite phenomenal. Now the UN has asked us to come back and do a projection event 
um, on the east side of the building facing uh, Queens. So you have the, the New York skyline and, you know, the we're projecting on the 38-story 30, tall Secretariat building. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the last year. Louis, um, what, is the, what, is, what do you want to achieve with this? What is the goal? The goal is to activate a, a, 100 million people to solve climate change. Listen, I've had a great life. Every, you know, you guys have too. As, Vicky, this has been, an, it's been amazing, you know, but the next generation, we're hosing them. You know, it's, it's like the, there's, I, 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 I would feel horrible if I thought I didn't do everything I could do to try to mitigate what's going on, at least use the talents that we have to, to try to alleviate some of the stresses that future generations are going to feel. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged because the films that we do really affect, you know, change at scale. It's just a delight to talk with you. And we're so mm -hmm. happy that you were on our show. And I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Yeah. So thanks for joining us on Rising Tide Ocean Podcast and uh, for making doing good exciting. Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. And now a word from our sponsor. Oil and gas is what plastic is made of. Single-use fossil fuel plastic can't be thrown away because there is no way, unless the 9% of it gets recycled. Instead, the ocean has become a dumping ground for plastic waste that kills millions of seabirds, whales, and turtles, dolphins, and other animals every year. Synthetic plastic is also accumulating in the human body with unknown health impacts. That's why the Sierra Club Marine Team suggests a few simple things you can do. Reduce your personal use of plastic, encourage friends and family to do the same, and support the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act and that will hold the petrochemical industry responsible for what it produces. The Sierra Club Marine Team, because 71% of the environment is salty. To learn more, check out Sierra Club Marine Team on Facebook. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helvarg and Vicki Nichols-Goldstein and with the support of Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Cape May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenvarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.